Hello, friends. Welcome to the Learner's Corner Podcast. My name is Caleb Mason, and I am so grateful that you have decided to spend part of your day here with me in the Learner's Corner. And today, I am honored to be joined by returning guest to the podcast, Mark Knoll. Mark was on just a few months ago, and we talked with him about his uh, one of his uh, books called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. And we'll link to that episode in the show notes in case you haven't had a chance to listen to it. However, today I am talking with him about his most recent book called America's Book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization, which covers the time period of 1794 to 1911. Now, we're going to get into kind of what our conversation is going to be about here in just a couple of minutes or so. However, if this happens to be your first time listening to the podcast, I do want to tell you about a couple of things about us here in the Learner's Corner. The first one is this, is that we truly want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. Another thing is that we believe that we can learn from anyone and from everyone, regardless of whether or not we agree with them. And we believe that we can learn from anything and from everything, regardless of whether that thing is something trivial or something a little bit more serious. And the reason why we do this, one of the motivating factors is to be the person that we had, maybe who was there for us, to be the mentor that we wish we had, or to maybe be the mentor or be the person that we wish we had and to help guide others along this journey of lifelong learning as well. And today, actually, I do want to say, um, you know, we, we cover so many different things here on the podcast today. We're going to talk a lot about history and faith and kind of the role in that, um, particularly how the, the Bible has been, uh, talked about and influenced in America as well over, um, while covering the periods, you know, as I said, from 1794 to 1911, that's kind of the time period that the book and, uh, our conversation is going to cover. As well, we're going to get into some of the implications of what that has for today as well. Now, we talk about so many different things here on the podcast. And if you have something that you would love to cover a subject, you can reach out to me at learnerscornerpodcast at gmail.com. And there's a chance that we may have already talked about it on the podcast, or maybe we haven't. And, you know, I can that can help uh, guide me along into some future episodes just as we explore different topics or if you have someone that you think would be a really good guest on the podcast please reach out to me at learners corner podcast at gmail.com now as i mentioned today going to talk with mark Knoll. going to talk about his book called america's book and that shows how the bible decisively shaped american national history even as that history influenced the use of scripture and how they kind of influenced each other. And we're going to get into um, many different things as well, but those are just a couple of the subjects. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Mark, and then we will dive into the conversation. So Mark Knoll is a professor of history emeritus at the University of Notre Dame. His recent publications include In the Beginning Was the Word, The Bible in Public Life, which covers the period of 1492 through 1783. America's God from Jonathan Edwards to Abraham Lincoln, and as co-editor of Protestantism after 500 years, and he has also authored the book The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind as well, which we talked with him about the last time he was on the podcast. Now, without any further wait, here is my conversation with Mark Knoll. 
Well, Mark, it's good to have you back on the podcast. Thank you. It's, uh, I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. And just as we're getting started, you know, we're going to talk a lot about uh, your most recent book called America's Book, you know, all about the the Bible. And I would just be uh, really curious to hear what first got you interested in exploring just the ideas around this book. Right. Uh, actually, the, the the roots of this tree that has now uh, uh, got some leaves on it uh, goes back a long ways. Uh, there's a there's a kind of historian's uh, root, and then there's a kind of religious practice root. The historian's root uh, comes from uh, my study as a graduate student and then uh, in early professional career of the American Revolution. And in the uh, revolution, the, the prominent political philosophy, the, the driving ideology of, the, of many of the founding fathers was what can be simplified as Republican theory. In other words, uh, the founding fathers felt that parliament had been corrupt and because it was corrupt, it was tyrannical. Because it tyrannical, it became more corrupt. And the solution was to have a republic in which uh, there'd be a certain measure of shared power. That it's not a democracy yet in modern terms. There's a certain amount of shared power, but crucially, uh, a republic in the in the 18th century uh, definition or understanding crucially depended upon the virtue of the citizens, particularly the virtue of the leading citizens. And in that period, there was a, a really interesting ambiguity as to where the notions of virtue came from. On the one side, uh, deeply rooted in classical and enlightenment uh, values about what it meant to be a good person, a good man acting in public, but also because in the colonies of the strength of the Puritan tradition and then of the revivals of the 18th century, virtue often meant Christian virtue. So you got a, a combination of, of uh, inputs uh, saying a republic will survive and flourish if, if the citizens or the leading citizens have virtue. And it was that ambiguity of a Christian definition of virtue, and then a uh, definition of virtue on, on kind of general historical understanding That's, that was so interesting because it, it brought together in a very close, but also a messy way, traditional Christian values and uh, the political theory of the day. So that, that was intriguing as a kind of intellectual historical problem. But then the, the real uh, desire to focus on the Bible. Of course, the Bible was important in the earlier one because the, 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 the leaders of all sorts, and it didn't make any difference what their personal religion was, drew from scripture as justification for the revolution. So Tom Paine uh, quotes 1 Samuel to show that God doesn't like monarchy. Uh, Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson proposed that as a seal of the United States, an image of, of the uh, children of Israel led by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. So the Bible's everywhere. But the specific focus came uh, at a group of historians. This was been about, gosh, I don't know, 1978, 1979, at a time when all of us were associated in one way or another with evangelical groups, and evangelical groups were obsessing over the question of biblical inerrancy. Does the Bible make any mistakes? And and uh, we recognize that's that's actually a, a really uh, a, a really important question, but. We're historians, so we wonder how come people are paying less interest in how people actually put the Bible to use? In other words, not, not over the question whether the Bible is true as history, but over the question what happens 
in time and different places as people turn to the to the scripture. So that was uh, that motive has actually continued on. So I, I, I'm still very interested in not just what people say about what the Bible is or should be, but how they actually put it to you. So I apologize for a long answer, but there, there is there's a the historian part of me, and then the practicing churchgoer, practicing Christian part of me came together on a series of questions about the nature of biblical understanding, biblical functioning in, in American history. Mm. Yeah. Can you talk maybe a, maybe a little bit more about both of those aspects and how um, what you wish pe- more people knew about those aspects that you were talking about, both the religious end and the historical end? Sure. Uh, and I mean, the book has uh, in the subtitle uh, that it goes from 1794 to 1911. There, there's reasons for those uh, specific dates, but, but a really great uh, illustration of the Republican side of things comes in how what we would today call American public education gets underway. It would have been called common schooling in, in the 19th century. And here I am relying a lot on a really good uh, dissertation that a, a student of mine that did at Notre Dame, David Comline, in a book that's now been published uh, called The Common School Awakening. Universally, uh, just very difficult to find any exception when uh, American reformers, educationists thought, we need an educational system that reaches out to everyone and a a tax supported system is fairest. It, it, It will include everybody uniformly. One element was, we should every day be having the students read from the King James Version of the Bible. Well, why the King James Version of the Bible? Because it's still largely a Protestant country into the 1830s and 1840s, because that, that's, a, that's a non-sectarian Bible. The Presbyterians use it, the Baptists use it, the Methodists use it, the Lutherans use it. And even sometimes when Catholics are taking part in public life, they're quoting from the King James Bible rather than the Douay-Rheims English translation. So. Why do they want the, the Bible read in schools? Because they recognize that if you have common schooling, you're going to reach everyone, and you need to have citizens who act on their own initiative out of their own choices in a virtuous manner, in a manner that's not selfish, that's not corrupt, that's not trying to uh, screw the rest of the, the people. And, and the Bible is going to be this, the way to do this. So to have daily Bible reading. Well, all sorts of problems develop soon, although not really until maybe the mid-century. Uh, the for a big problem is if you get more Catholics and they use a different English translation of the Bible, they don't want to be forced to read the, uh, the King James Bible. And then by the mid-century, you also have quite a few Jewish uh, immigrants to the United States. They, they don't want, why, why should they be reading the New Testament? And later on, of course, you get a lot of religious pluralism. But the Republican angle is that this, is, this was just taken for granted Bible reading in the schools is a good thing for society. Now, from a religious point of view, you have to say, well, what happens to Bible faith if many, many of the voices talking about the Bible in the public sphere are talking about it for utilitarian purposes, for instrumental purposes? We're going to have kids read the Bible because we want to have a good society. We want to have kids read the Bible because we want them to act responsibly when they become adults and voters. Well, I mean, what, what could be wrong with that? Nothing really, except that if you think the Bible's purpose is really not to 
to prop up the United States of America, but to point people to God, then, then, then it, it, it's almost inevitable that um, discussion of the Bible will become a matter of conflict, not what it says about God and how people should love and honor God and honor their neighbor because they honor God, but who, who's putting the Bible to best use to serve public purposes? There's a really uh, a great illustration of this, this tension that comes in Cincinnati, where the, the, the school board right after the American Civil War recognized that there's a lot of Catholics in Cincinnati, and a significant number of Jews as well, says, well, we're not gonna have any more Bible readings in the public school because um, it's just not fair. We, we wanna have freedom of religion. And there, there's a suit brought by defenders of Bible readings. No, 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 we need, we need to have Bible reading. And it co comes to the, uh, the, uh, the courts and, and there's a, a series of predictable arguments. The people that don't want Bible reading are stressing the American commitment to religious freedom. The people that do want Bible reading are saying we need to build up character or otherwise the Republic is going to fail. But one of the lawyers who argued on behalf of stopping Bible readings was a man named Stanley Matthews. He was a conservative Presbyterian. He begins his very long speech to the Cincinnati court in the spring of 1869 by saying, I believe every word of the Bible. I'm a serious Presbyterian. I'm a Calvinist. I believe in predestination and all the Calvinist thing, but I don't want the Bible read in public schools because that's not the purpose. It's parents and kids on their own who should be reading the Bible. He was against instrumentalizing the scriptures for some kind of civic, civic purpose. It was a very, I mean, very interesting uh, uh, argument. Not too many people were paying attention, but a really interesting ar argument that, that he made, uh, trying to defend a higher purpose for the scriptures than simply uh, doing something that would help the body politic. Yeah, and it and as you were saying, and it, and it even just makes me think of how much of a blending of scripture and nationalism can can yeah. happen through yeah. that. Um, can you can you talk a, kind of about two things? One, that blending that you have seen take place, and also the the higher purpose for the scripture that you mentioned as well. Right. Well, the blending is is uh, often. Uh, present when you have a conflict and both sides feel that they're doing the right thing by the scriptures. And, and the, 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 the huge example of that is the American Civil War. Mm -hmm. I have a chapter in, in the book that uh, in which a significant part uh, documents how not so much soldiers in the field, but, but people at home uh, automatically read the Bible as supporting their cause. Um, there'd be a battle and uh, the side that won would, would have days of thanksgiving. The sides that lost would have days of repentance. They would, they would all be turning to the scriptures. They would all be saying the Bible is either uh, showing why we were victorious or why we lost. And uh, it, it was a, uh, I mean, it just, it, there, there, there was almost a complete subordination of an independent message to people as spiritual, a complete subordination to national concern. Same thing happened uh, in World War One. In the book, my book ends just a little bit before World War One, but I talk, I talk a little bit about the way in which uh, 
uh, the, the, the war enthusiasm, 1916, 1917, 1918, made it very difficult for people who, who said, well, I'm not a pacifist, but I don't think this is a just war by Bible terms, or I am a pacifist because I, I believe the Bible teaches it. And these people had a lot of trouble during, during uh, uh, World War I. Higher purposes. Uh, one of the mo most interesting things I discovered in, in uh, the research for uh, the book were, were statements by Jewish Bible scholars about the character of the United States. And, and one individual by the name of Solomon Schechter was particularly intriguing. He came to the United States as an adult with a, with a very fine reputation as a student of Middle Eastern history. As a student of Hebrew, he'd had a, a, a prime position, I think, at the University of Cambridge before he arrived in the United States. And, and he was very active in uh, promoting um, a, a, a Jewish-sponsored English-language translation of the Bible. And, but he also actually had some very kind things to say about the King James Version of the Bible. But in, in, in speeches, particularly around the, the founding of a Jewish theological seminary in New York City, Solomon Schechter said, well, we, we Jews are sticking up for the Bible here because we want to help America be stronger. And we recognize that, that uh, the Bible has been a really strong element in supporting uh, Amer much in American history. But, he said, but for Jews, the scriptures have to be a book of universal value. They must mean, as I'm paraphrasing now, they must mean as much to people who don't live in the United States as they do to people who live in the United States. And he was in effect saying, Jews with their loyalty to the Hebrew scriptures could, can make a really strong contribution to the nation. But that really strong contribution to the nation should be always subordinate to understanding the scriptures as God's revelation to all people in all circumstances throughout, throughout the entire world. That is, there's some Christian voices who, who would say the same thing, although not really as many as <laughs> I think it'd, it'd, it'd be really nice, nice to see. Yeah. Um, I, I would be curious to hear, what are some of the other themes that you've seen through, through the period of history that you cover in the book that, um, that are still apparent today and that we're still dealing with today? Right. One of the, the main themes that weaves its way through uh, many of the chapters concerns how the scriptures were put to use uh, for or against slavery, actually up to and even after the time of the American Civil War, and then how serious differences um, showed the, the uh, contrasting ways, with some overlap, the contrasting ways that African Americans and white Americans appropriated uh, the, the Bible. So be before the Civil War, there's a huge, huge literature asking the question, does the Bible justify slavery? And uh, I've, I've read, you know, a, a still only a small fraction, but hundreds, hundreds of articles, books, big books, uh, uh, pamphlets, all sorts of things. And, and um, the, the, the intriguing thing was that, that the trust in the scripture itself did not mean that people would be united in what the scripture said. And then uh, at the time, African-Americans who had become just as adept, just as many of them become just as adept as familiar, had, had almost a completely different way of understanding the Bible. It wasn't 
it wasn't how you interpret a few verses in Leviticus 25 or 1 Timothy 6. And, and those were passages that people just argued, uh, white people argued just endlessly. It wasn't how you argued about separate passages, but it was, it was your sense of the, the entire scope of the Bible story. So one of the most moving things that I discovered, and it happened fairly frequently, were Black people who were touched by the Bible's message, and in some cases even became active as exhorters or preachers before they learned to read. So an early example was a man named David George, who was, a, who was an enslaved person in uh, South Carolina, who was actually liberated by the British and eventually uh, taken to uh, Nova Scotia, where he founded a church and then went to Sierra Leone in Africa and founded a church. And George was converted by hearing a sermon and then began to preach by having only memorized the text in which he would preach. And he later became a reader, actually quite a quite a, a learned person, but so that tradition of African-American Bible investment was, was it, it wasn't universal amongst uh, Blacks, but it was, it was really strong. And by the time you get to the mid 19th century, you have some, a few African-American authors who are just as good as the whites at quoting chapter and verse and, and, and picking up. But then you have even more who say, well, no, the, we look at the story of the Exodus. We look at the story of Jesus' ministry. And, and when, when, when those are the way we organize scripture, there's just no defense for slavery at all. And, and of course, the black people regularly said, and a few whites said, well, whatever the Bible says about slavery, almost all the slaves in the Bible or all the slaves in the Bible are white people. So yeah, man, there's a race issue. Okay, how does that come to the present? Right down to the present in, in the United States, we, we have vigorous African-American churches, vigorous white churches, with some, with more, thank goodness, more interchange between the two than, than there used to be. But, but on, on the approach to public issues in society, we, we know from, I mean, now in the age of polling, African-American Bible believers are gonna be Democrats. Africa, white Bible believers gonna tend to be Republicans. Well, is the Bible at fault? Well, no, but we're seeing deeply ingrained patterns of Bible appropriation in American life that really in earlier days actually led to violence and you had some real, real nasty things happening, but they continue on to shape broad communities of people who do have, they share respect for the scriptures, but they don't share in too many details how the scriptures are going to be understood for ap ap application in society. You might understand application of personal morality, but not, not in society. Mm -hmm. What would be another theme that you saw take place that is also apparent today? Well, the book ends 1911, which is the 300th anniversary of the King James Bible, and, and it became a good place to end the book because in that year, there was just a tremendous outpouring of celebration. Uh, President Taft and the King of England exchanged messages, both saying how great the Bible was and how much the King James Version had met for, for their countries. And I was particularly drawn to the celebrations of that year because in the spring of 1911, 
within a matter of just a few weeks, uh, the, the, a former pre the former president, Teddy Roosevelt, an aspiring presidential candidate, Woodrow Wilson, and the three-time Democratic presidential candidate, William Jennings Bryan, all gave speeches on the Bible and how wonderful the King James Version had been for American civilization. Bryan's speech was actually a, a, was a little bit more focused upon how the Bible brings the message of Christ. So it was a Christian speech. Wilson and Roosevelt, there really, there really wasn't much Christianity, but there was a lot of praise for the Bible as a book of, of democracy. And I think what, what they illustrated is the way in which less frequently now, but still occasionally, uh, public leaders will draw on the scriptures not, not in a negative or a, or a terrible way, but draw on the scriptures, not really to say or teach anything about the Bible's message, but in order to give a kind of sacred reinforcement for what they're trying to say. Mm -hmm. I remember uh, uh, it really struck me, uh, this was early on in uh, Barack Obama's presidential tenure. He was the speaker at, at one of the national prayer breakfast breakfasts. And he and his speechwriters put together really, really a, a remarkable speech. I think I, I counted the Bible quotations. I think there were 10 or 11 or 12 Bible quotations. And uh, he quoted C.S. Lewis. And, but of course, he, he was quoting the scriptures to, to uh, uh, support his attitude toward health care and other things. Not, not in a hugely active way, but you can tell where it was headed. And immediately thereafter, you, you get representatives of the Republican National Committee saying, oh, this, this perversion of the scriptures, this, this, this way of, of putting the Bible. To, and so immediately uh, what Brian and Roosevelt and Wilson were doing to make the popularity of the Bible serve their contemporary issues was being, was being uh, replicated today. I mean, that doesn't happen all the time. I, I actually uh, have... Uh, the book was mostly not about the present, but I, mm -hmm. I, I'm able to, to quote some of the speeches that George Bush gave and to uh, cite the really uh, powerful memorial that uh, Barack Obama gave at the uh, funeral of, of Clementa Pinckney, the black pastor who, who was killed and in, in assassinated, killed in, in uh, South Carolina, mm. where there, there, I mean, Again, they're, they're public figures, but uh, when one of the, uh, the space episodes went down, Bush quoted the Bible for comfort and reassurance and not for his own purposes. And Obama at this memorial address uh, talked about how the Clement of Pinckney as a minister emphasized grace and how uh, God's grace is imperative for personal life and then life in society. So these were not theologically deep, but, but they, they showed that occasionally, at least you could still have public figures who were appealing to the scriptures, not just to support their agenda that they had already in place, but could, as it were, step back and say, well, what, what do we need to consider about what the Bible might have to say for us as persons before we think about as political actors. Mm. And then, you know, I, I am a little bit discouraged that we don't, we have so little of that. Uh, part, of, part of the reason is there's just not as much referring to the Bible now in public as there was 
just thick on the ground into the Civil War period and even after. But uh, on the occasions where public leaders actually are able to uh, put the scriptures to use to, to have people think about themselves, think about others, rather than just to serve their own partisan purposes, that's that's a really that that's a carryover from the past as well. Yeah. Who were you know maybe one or two historical figures just as you're going through the research really like that just really resonated with you and that you took a lot from like just their lives and just how they carried themselves. You uh, thankfully provided that question ahead of time so I could think <laughs> and I, I have a, a nice mnemonic way of, of, of answering the question that I point to three people named Francis. Francis Asbury was the great leader of the Methodist in the early United States and he was a, a, a red hot Bible preacher, a gospel preacher, but uh, an individual who uh, more or less refused to put his understanding of the Bible in support of political positions. So this early United States, the, the uh, what we call the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans were almost as much at each other's throats, maybe even more so as extreme Democrats and Republicans are in our day. And many of the active church people took political sides, but Francis Asbury didn't. And as a leader of the Methodists, he engineered a person of tremendous energy. He engineered uh, the most significant expansion of church adherence in the history of the United States, spearheaded by the Methodists. He met George Washington personally two or three times uh, in New York City, where it was the capital at the time. But only once did he even mention it in his journal, which was very extensive and published. He mentioned thousands of local Methodists, but, but he, he just wasn't concerned about the, the politics. And that kind of dedicated spirituality, I think, really uh, dedicated loyalty to the Bible really had a difference. Then Francis Willard was the uh, leading figure in the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Uh, she was uh, dedicated to temperance as a, a remedy for alcoholism, but even more as a, a remedy for child abuse and spouse abandonment and, and the evils of drunkenness. She, she was a, uh, a, a, a also a Methodist, a really, a really uh, committed Bible person. She, she cooperated with the evangelist D.L. Moody in some of his early campaigns. Uh, but she also cooperated with what we would call early feminist uh, activities. So she sometimes worked with uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and others who were eager to have women get the vote and, and have a, 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 a more prominent place in society. In the 1890s, Elizabeth Cady Stanton published a book called The Woman's Bible, which she recruited a lot of uh, different women to comment on Bible passages, mostly to, to say either the Bible just was mistaken about relationship between men and women, or the Bible had been misinterpreted to, to the disadvantage. And Frances Willard actually contributed to this book, and she, she, in effect, said, well, yes, certainly the Bible has been used to uh, disadvantage women, but, and, and bless her heart, Elizabeth Cady Stanton published this letter in her book, but there's no place in the world where Elizabeth Cady Stanton could have the freedom to complain about how the Bible had been used where the Bible had not been at the foundation of the civilization. In other words, they're quite a sophisticated argument. 
Yes, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, I think you're exaggerating things and I don't think it's quite as bad as you say, although I do agree with you on quite a bit of what you say about the rights of women, but what foundation underlies the house in which you're free to make these statements? It's a foundation in which people have taken seriously the Bible. And then a contemporary of, of uh, Francis Willard was a, a black Presbyterian pastor in Washington, D.C. by the name of Francis Grimke. He, he was born a slave in, in uh, South Carolina. He was supposed to have been liberated when his master died. There, there's, a, there's a complicated family history. He, he wasn't, but he was emancipated at the end of the Civil War. And then, then he was able to get a Northern education and actually became a graduate of, a, of the Princeton Theological Seminary, one of the few African-Americans to have that privilege. And then for a, a very long period from the 1870s as an active minister in Washington, DC into the 19 teens and twenties. And then as a retired minister is still the same Presbyterian church in DC into the 1930s. He had a very long and distinguished career. Francis Grimke really stands out to me for what he combined, for how he combined elements that at that time were beginning to fly apart and have in some sense remained apart to this day. In his theology, his preaching, he comes very close to what we today call a fundamentalist. Hmm. He has a, he, for in the 1890s, he had a, a series of sermons that he gave as a visiting speaker in and around Washington, he on temperance. And he, he, he was really in favor of prohibition. He thought that was just absolutely vital. He gave sermons about how important it was to, for husbands and wives to remain faithful to each other. I mean, he was a real strict moralist. Uh, he believed in missionary service. Okay, so he, he is a person who's close to a fundamentalist in, in his beliefs about truth and morals. And he's a founder of the NAACP. And he's supporter of W.B. Du Bois in Du Bois's efforts to have African-Americans push back against lynching, push back against discrimination. And uh, Grimke uh, is not afraid to chastise Woodrow Wilson when Wilson, President Wilson resegregated the American Civil Service. And Grimke complains when Billy Sunday comes to uh, Washington, D.C. and holds rallies where the seating is segregated. So here's this person as kind of a near fundamentalist, and he's really active in promoting cutting-edge social reform. He's the secretary treasurer of an organization in the early 20th century aimed at, at having uh, scholarships for black students to, go, to get uh, higher education. So he, does, he, doesn't, he, he doesn't compute in, in the categories that we have now. He, and he was, I, I mean, I was just delighted to find a, a large four volume set of his writings that, that uh, Carter Woodson, a pioneering black historian had pulled together around, around 1940. And, and I mean, it's terrific to see the, writing, but it's also terrific to, to read Woodson's introduction. Woodson says, well, I'm actually quite skeptical about these black preachers that just preach about heaven and don't know anything on earth. But you know, Grimke is different. And, and so he, here's a person who really didn't have a lot to say about his fellow African-Americans who were preachers, but he really liked Francis Grimke. And, and so Francis Asbury, Francis Willard, Francis Grimke, of course, Francis Willard is C-E-S instead of C-I-S. But these, these Francis's were people that really stuck out to me. Mm. Yeah, and that's even just a really good reminder of just how complex we are 
as, yes. pe- as people. Yeah. Um, what what might be uh, some or uh, some moments or some events that really stood out to you that it's like, man, I wish more people would know about that because I've, you know, obviously you have something like the civil, and you know, it's okay if your answer is the civil war too, uh, right. but you have something like the civil war to where it's like, yep, we all studied that. We all grew up. Um, but I would love to hear some of the moments that maybe aren't as popular that really stood out to you. Right. Well, I, I will say about, about the civil war, what, what really struck me. And, and I, I, in this case, I was not doing a lot of the research myself, but drawing upon, Oh, maybe 30 good books that have been published in the last 20 or 25 years based on the, on the, uh, the document, the letters and diaries of, of just ordinary uh, soldiers and actually ordinary uh, citizens. I've mentioned already that not those people not in the field would tend to instrumentalize the scripture for national purpose. I, I was really struck by how uh, the, the men and very few women on active service turned to the Bible for solace, comfort, and even charity toward their foes. Now. The propaganda at the time by ministers in the North and South said, well, all of our boys are, are good Christians. Well, that's not true. Maybe it might have been 20%, maybe 25%, but a very significant minority. And uh, there are just a number of uh, just moving occasions uh, that uh, I happened to run across and it, several people who were quoting uh, Army letters from the Battle of Shiloh, uh, 1862, early in 1862, General Grant has been successful. He's coming down the Tennessee River, I think. There's a big uh, battle. And in the evenings of the battle, there are records of troops from both sides singing the same hymn together a couple of the well-known hymns of Isaac Watts. There are uh, lay people who are reading from the Psalms to commit the dead to burial. They're not militaristic, they're not nationalistic. They're saying these are, these are really important opportunities of people who are meeting God, they're, 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 they're in eternity. An earlier, uh, year that I spotlight is an entire chapter was 1844. And I, I, I wish people did know more about things that happened in 1844, although it, you kind of get down in the weeds of American history when you're doing this. There's a hotly contested presidential election. Uh, Henry Clay for the Whigs is trying again to be president against the, the first dark horse candidate nominated by the Democrats, James K. Polk. Um, Henry Clay's vice presidential running mate is a man named Theodore Frelinghuysen, who had been a US Senator from New Jersey. Uh, he was known as a Christian statesman. He gave a speech very shortly after he was nominated for vice president to the American Bible Society, in which he said, he didn't go, he wasn't a harshly militant speech, but he did go out of the way and say quite a few negative things about Catholics for not honoring the Bible. Now, what he meant was he didn't honor the King James Bible. And that speech took place only a very few days after a a terrific riot in Philadelphia that had been keyed when some hot-headed, I would call them Christian nationalists, passed around word that the bishop, Catholic bishop of Philadelphia, a man by the name of Kenrick, had had said, had, had, had 
complained about reading the Bible in, in the public schools. Well, he really didn't. What he, what he had said is, could we have our Catholic students read from the Douay Reims Bible while other students are reading from the, and, and the result was a, uh, was a, a riot that went on for several days in which a, a couple of Catholic churches were torched, several people were killed, a lot of people, a lot of uh, property was destroyed. So you had this Bible riot in Philadelphia, you had the Bible Society sermon by the vice presidential candidate. You had actually a, a contentious presidential race where admitting Texas was the major issue. And the Whigs, though they, they're, not, they're not systematically against slavery, Henry Clay himself is a slaveholder, but they, they tended to be against the expansion of slavery. The Democrats were all for the admission of Texas because it would allow slavery to expand. So you had the morally charged issue of slavery involved. And then also in 1844, the quadrennial meeting of the Methodists fell apart because over the question, could a, could a bishop who, or, or, yes, could, could someone who owned slave be a bishop? Well, there was a, a Northern element said never, Southern element said yes. And the division, the result was that the Methodists divided. And then later in the year, same year, the Baptist Triennial Mission Conference met, same kind of issue. Should somebody appointed to be a foreign missionary be a slave owner? Strong Northern sentiment, no. Strong Southern sentiment, yes. The result was a division, Southern Baptist, Northern Baptist, and that division continues to, to this day. You know, the Methodists came back together in the 1930s. So in that one year, oh yes, and then, we, we come to the presidential election, very tight, very close. Henry Clay's the favorite, but James K. Polk wins in large part because he has a narrow win in New York. And it, there's a narrow win in New York, probably primarily because there's a terrific Catholic mobilization against Clay and Frulingheisen for what Frulingheisen said about the Catholics. So you have all of these things happening from like April of, of uh, 1844 to November. And, and it just seemed to encapsulate the way in which morality, politics, local school board issues, uh, presidential aspirations, all of these things came together. And it's not that though they're all Bible-centered, but the Bible is right there in every, every one of these events. And uh, it really was, just a dramatic year. And unfortunately, as, as quite a few notable statesmen said, uh, John C. Calhoun, Daniel Webster, you know, if these big denominations break apart, what's going to keep the union together? And, you know, a few years later, they, they were right. Yeah. What are some of the, the things, or I guess the lessons that you take away from that? Well, again, um, I'm, I'm, I'm so impressed with the way in which Francis Asbury remained a dedicated Bible person and just shied away from getting too involved politically. Uh, and, and then I'm so impressed by how deep the loyalty to the Bible went in African-American communities that were being uh, put upon, oppressed, sometimes killed in part by communities that also honored the Bible. I, I, I just, uh, it, it just seems to me that uh, when power 
is linked to an appeal to biblical sanction, danger is the result. Mm-hmm. We're humans. And, and we just, if, if we're able to exert influence over others, we'll, we'll do anything that helps us exert influence. <laughs> and and in a, throughout much of the 19th century, it began to change to some extent. Everybody honored the Bible. Now, not everybody read the Bible, not everybody believed the Bible, but you just, you just couldn't, you, you got a, eventually a few people who kind of became famous for knocking the Bible. But after, after um, the period where the, the book starts, and it starts in 1794 because there's a terrific pushback when Tom Paine publishes a book knocking the Bible. There's just scores of works and, and terrific mobilization. So for a long, long time, just everybody is honoring the Bible. But if, if, if you are in a position of power and know that the community honors the Bible, the temptation is almost irresistible to say, well, it's not just a good idea, but it's a God-given idea. It's not just mm-hmm. my sense for what the nation needs. It's what God wants the nation. And boy, that's dangerous. That is really dangerous. The two-step process, which... It seems to be seems to be logical, but hard to hard to see happening. Here is the way I think uh, public life should work. You may not agree with me on why I think that way, but here's four or five reasons why I think that way. Can we talk about those reasons? You know that 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 process. Of course, you have to you have to take a little time. You can't just do 144 characters. <laughs> yeah. you, you you have to say, and then you have to be willing to respect people who are going to disagree at some level, either the policy or how you're bringing the, 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 the sacred sanction to bear. Um, American democracy is a wonderful thing and it's done many wonderful uh, accomplishments, but it also tends to have people, you know, shoot first and aim second and on this question of the Bible, as well as on other things. Yeah. Uh, one person that I would just love um, your take on and some of the things that you took away, and I know that uh, you cover him in the book, um, is Abraham Lincoln as well. Yeah. And like his his part in the yeah. conversation. Yeah, really, really interesting subject. I mean, obviously, Lincoln has been the subject of tremendous scrutiny. I've got a nine volume uh, set of his writings that I've read not everything, but an awful lot in there. And, and of course, use the index to find everything he says about the Bible. And, and uh, I've read quite a few of the books about Lincoln. And if, if, if you want a, you want a full catalog of divergent views, start reading books about Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln, was he really a Jesuit? Was he a free thinker? Was he, was he a Methodist? Was he a Mormon? Well, you can get, anyhow, the really good histories show the people who've stuck to the primary sources, who have emphasized sources during Lincoln's life. I mean, after, after Lincoln was assassinated, became the national hero, then people remembered stuff, you know, it didn't happen, mm-hmm. but that, that supported. But if you stick to the really good historians, I think it's clear. As a young man, Lincoln read and to some extent followed what would be skeptical, Tom Paine type ideas. Um, he always was a theist. He always believed that there was at least a power over human, but he, he was quite skeptical about uh, traditional religion, traditional Christianity. Uh, when he ran for office in Illinois in the what, 1830s, he, he put out a, a brochure that said, 
uh, the, the, no, the, the, the news has got along that I'm a despiser of religion. Well, that's not true. Uh, it was a good political statement. And then uh, when he's married uh, with Mary Todd and lives in Springfield, one of his sons dies. And uh, Mary is an Episcopalian, but her minister is out of town. And the local Presbyterian minister, man by the name of Smith, is, is, is consoling to the family. And she then becomes a member of that Presbyterian church. Lincoln doesn't attend often, but he does, he does attend some. And he respects the minister, at least to some degree, because the minister has written a very long book trying to argue for the reasonableness of, of Christianity. And, and Lincoln is a, a thinker. He, he's, it, he doesn't necessarily buy the arguments, but he, he's quiet about what his religious views are. But there's, there clearly seems to be the case that as it comes closer to the 1860 and his run for president, and then especially after the Civil War starts, that he, he recognized that he's the one responsible for sending the first scores, and then hundreds and thousands of young men into battle, where many of them will die. There's, there's a real obvious concentration of moral sensibility. He's a Bible reader. All, all throughout his uh, life, there, there are really expert historians uh, um, who, who now have uh, identified the 11 or 12 Bibles. Uh, Lincoln read a lot of primary source uh, from, from the Civil War era, but people say he's reading the scriptures. And uh, while he never makes or hardly ever makes anything specifically Christian. There's one, one exception that I'll, I'll mention just a bit. It's, it's clear that he, he's, he's thinking more and more about the, the, the fate or the divine providence that rules over everything. The one exception is when in 1864, there's a delegation of black ministers from Baltimore who raised a lot of money, I mean like six or seven hundred dollars, huge sum at that time, to have a special Bible printed up, a big pulpit Bible with the image of the of the emancipated slave, the famous uh, uh, image of the black who's lost the, the chains and raised his hands. And they present Lincoln as, as a, this Bible as a tribute to the Emancipation Proclamation. And Lincoln replies that the Bible is the best gift the Savior has given to humankind. That's a very rare moment when he speaks about Jesus. Hmm. But then famously, uh, it, when he's reelected and he gives the second inaugural address in early March of 1865, he quotes from the scriptures several times and always with great respect. Uh, um, uh, judge not that you be not judged. He talks about slavery as earning uh, you're living by the sweat of another man's brow, again, a Bible quotation. And then he says something that he'd written in private, maybe a couple of years earlier. People think that they know what God is doing, but both sides read the same Bible. Both pray to the same God. The will of God could not be conformed to one of those, and it's probable that he, it's not conformed to either of those. God's ways are higher than our ways. So it's, it's very rare. There are a few believers 
who also say we shouldn't try to specify what God is doing here. But Lincoln is, 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 is a person who is, I would call him a theist believer, not a Christian believer. Yeah. But he, 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 he's one of the very few people who say, we don't know in detail what God is doing. We're responsible for doing what we think is, is right. And, and on the basis of that, then he ends with this just uh, almost an unbelievable peroration, the end of his speech, with, with malice toward none, with charity toward all. I mean, here, here's 700,000 people killed. Everybody in the North is enraged at everybody in the South. Well, not everybody. And then all the white people in the South are enraged at everybody in the North. Uh, and Lincoln is saying we need to bind up the wounds of the broken and, and care for the widows and children, basically both sides. So it, it's a message of charity. How does, it, how does it become a charity? Well, it's because he thinks that no human is able to stand for God in the, these very difficult times. Shortly before, just, uh, I mean, a matter of weeks, uh, the Union Army had recaptured Fort Sumter. And as a special celebration, they asked down one of the leading ministers of the day, Henry Ward Beecher, Harriet Beecher Stowe's brother, to get, come give a sermon. And he gave a rip-snorting sermon in which Jefferson Davis was going to be condemned to the deepest hell that there ever was. He went on and on and on. I mean, he was a good speaker. It was a great speech, but completely using the Bible as a weapon to attack the Confederates. And just a couple of weeks later, uh, Abraham Lincoln does not do that. Now, why? A lot, obviously, a historian, a lot of psychological, a lot of, yeah. and I, I actually don't, I think the answer is we, we just don't know, but, but it's, re it's really clear that he stands out as someone whose moral compass was pointing to something beyond your side and my side uh, politically. Uh, and, and I just want, want to add as a, uh, as a as a kind of aside the, the really good scholarship that exists now: Michael Burlingame, Alan Gelzo, Richard Carwardine, and there and there's others too, have made it possible to have a nuanced view of Abraham Lincoln, a historically accurate view, rather than a view of Lincoln where he just is. He's a great American. He must believe like me. Well. That's 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 not that's not the case. Yeah, I know that you you know you mentioned uh, you know the nine volume set and and everything that you have of Lincoln. Is there anything else that really just stands out to you about him? Well, yes, uh, he is you know mostly self self educated. He went to school what two or three years at, at, at uh, little bits. He is uh, the best prose writer certainly among the American presidents. Maybe Thomas Jefferson would be an exception. This is incredibly um, facile thinker and writer. Uh, just, re just remarkable to see this, this person who did not have the benefit of education write so compellingly and often so succinctly, right? You know, so. You can read the second inaugural address in less than 10 minutes. Uh, uh, the first inaugural address is longer, and it's actually not, not as interesting for its moral dimensions. But again, it, it, it's right at the start of South Carolina and other states have succeeded or seceded already. 
uh, Virginia's hanging in the balance. You think, gosh, we're going to get a two-hour, and it's, 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 you know, it's a good long address, but it's succinct. Um, his, his personal life, too, is uh, intriguing to me. Uh, he, he, he lost a son before coming to Washington, and one of his sons died in the White House. And uh, these deaths added to what he knew was his responsibility for the maimed and the killed soldiers, I think really preyed on his mind and made him really serious about the moral dimensions of what was happening. Well, I know that we've covered uh, a lot of stuff in, in the book, and there's so many, so many years uh, as well. But is there anything just uh, top of mind that, uh, that you really want to make sure that we cover before we end our conversation? I was, it's been a, a decades long process of doing the research for this. And I, I think I've come away with uh, maybe two personal um, things as, as a person who believes in the, the Bible's message uh, myself. Yeah. One is how beautifully liberating and encouraging the scriptural message can be. Now, I think that it's, this is most obviously seen in American history with those without power, uh, African-American communities. Um, there's a little bit in the book about uh, indigenous people, Native Americans, but, but it, it includes uh, whites as well. Uh, just how many, how, how many individuals, how many families found in the scriptures a message of hope, a way of repenting of their own errors, their own sins, a way of reconciliation with God, a way, a way of being motivated for service to others. So I conclude that, that the, the very wonderful things that so many Christian believers, also Jewish, and then for the, for the, in their own way, Muslim believers say about the holy writings are true. These are words of life. But the other takeaway is how easy it is, as we've talked in, in different, different ways, how easy it has been for um, humans with all the weaknesses that we have to use what is a sacred message calling us out of ourselves as a message over which we dominate and use at the expense of others. So the, the, the commandments of Jesus, the two great commandments, love God, love your neighbors yourself, you can say them pretty easily, but they're really difficult to uh, put into practice. And unfortunately, the Bible has been used as a weapon to enslave people as well as to liberate people. So that that combination. And then, you know, you say, well, where where do I lean? Well, it depends what day of the week it is, you know. <laughs> but but trying to see both of those things. What 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 a tremendous gift it has been in, for you. U.S. history to have scripture centrally located, very centrally throughout the time I'm writing about, and to some extent to this day, but then also the, the real difficulties that have attended how people have often, not always, often put the Bible to use. Mm. So that, that, that would be, the, I think, the personal takeaway I have from these decades of research. Yeah. Uh, I guess one other question that I would love to ask is um, both personally and uh, even historically, what have you seen that helps um, manage that just that tension? 
Yes, well, I, I do think that that uh, when people in, in private conversations in their in their places of worship and public life don't rush to us make their assertions, things just go better. I mean, I, I, I do think I'm in some sense glad I stopped when I did. I didn't have to talk about social media and <laughs> religious life, but but. Uh, uh, when 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 you encourage the person who disagrees with you to explain why you disagree, and the person who disagrees lets you, you explain why you disagree, you're you're in a position where you can actually have communication. If on the other hand, I've called you an idiot, and you've called me an idiot, and or, 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 well, what happened all the time in the years before, you call me an infidel, I call you an infidel because you don't understand the Bible correctly. Boy, that's a tough, tough beginning point for um, in any kind of fruitful communication. So the, I, I do think that the ways of interpreting the Bible are contested. There's, there's many different ways of getting into the scriptures and drawing the scriptural message out. But uh, you're almost guaranteed not to benefit from trying to think about the Bible in public if you just rush in and say, here's the way it's got to be, and, and just refuse to listen to anybody else who's also been deeply engaged with, with the, the scripture. So slowing down, encouraging each other to say, as to speak in paragraphs rather than in sentences, uh, allowing uh, a lot of room for individuals to say on the one hand this and the other hand that, these would be not uh, solutions that guaranteed to bring complete harmony and, and satisfaction, but solutions that would lead to a better uh, and, a, and a much more healthy public uh, uh, appeal to the sacred writings. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Uh, letting people speak in paragraphs instead of sentences. It, it, it also, like, I love that analogy or that uh, that metaphor. It also made me think of, like, for those of us going, like, can we, can we speak in paragraphs instead of sentences too? Uh, well, Mark, I know that people are going to, you know, get want to get the book, you know, America's book and keep up with you. Where's the best place for people to go to do with those things? Well, the, the uh, Amazon has uh, copies for sale of, of, of uh, America's book, The Rise and Decline of a Bible Civilization, 1794 to 1911. Got to get the, the book uh, And, and uh, you know, my, my contact information is still, I think, on, on the Notre Dame web website where I'm emeritus faculty in the history department. I'd be more than pleased to communicate with people who take time to read even a little bit of the book. It's a big book and uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, demand anybody read the whole thing, but uh, I'd, be, I'd be very pleased to, to, to talk with them, to communicate with them, email them about it. Awesome. Well, Mark, thanks so much for being on the podcast today and thanks for just doing the work. Well, thank you, Caleb, for again, reading the book and asking some really good questions. So coming out of that conversation with Mark, I think I am reminded of just the complexity of history. And uh, we talked about this on a, uh, on a recent episode of the Learner's Corner podcast as well. Just, uh, I guess, just referencing uh, several different ones, but with Vern Poitras as well, of just the role of history and how 
history can be a very complex thing and that I think sometimes we could try to simplify it in order to understand it. However, in order to understand something, sometimes it requires us diving into the complexity of that thing. And sometimes it is helpful to put things in simpler terms. However, it is important to engage in that complexity as well. Whether that be in the complexity of understanding historical figures or realizing that there were several factors that influenced uh, many different events or historical events that were happening as well. And I think just the other thing, and we've talked about this so many times on the podcast as well, of just understanding history and how it has played out in the past, because so many times what has happened in the past or what is happening today is very similar to something that happened in the past and that we can't necessarily predict the future. However, we can learn about how things went in the past and learn how we can handle things and just situations better from from how we handled them in the past as well. And I think the other thing is just realizing how in this case, or in this conversation, the Bible, but in many other cases, um, many other um, documents or or written words or, or anything like that can be used to, to further our own agenda. And especially that can happen with the Bible as well. And that's why, you know, that's... Many people were using the Bible to justify slavery and that whenever you look at the words of Jesus and the preeminent, the, the most important command is to love one another well. And just realizing that you just can't pick and choose different things in order to further your own agenda or to further advance your own aims. And that it has to be the Bible or whatever written form or document or whatever is ripped, that you can't just rip things from their context in order to make it work from you. And so that's just another thing that I got thinking about. So those are just a few things that I'm thinking about in regards to this conversation as well. I would love to hear some of the things that you're learning from. And the best way to reach out to me is Learners Corner Podcast at gmail.com and let me know some of the things that you're learning about, some of your good uh, reading recommendations as well. And that's all that I have for today. I do want to say thank you to Sam Massey for creating the music for this podcast. Thank you to Mark for coming back on the podcast and having a very fun conversation. And thank you for listening all the way to the end of the episode. My name is Caleb Mason. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing.